Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans, the fourth chapter. We have been going through the book of Romans, and this week we come to the end of chapter 4. Uh, verses 18 to 25. The Apostle Paul is dealing with the problem that's all through the New Testament, which is that um, because God chose the race of the Jews to put his, his grace and his favor on them, that the Jews came to believe in their racial superiority, their ethnic superiority. And because it was a placeholder for that ethnic superiority, circumcision, because what you did with a Jewish boy when he was born is you circumcise him. And so the Jews are trying to manipulate eternity and salvation in God through their ethnicity, their race, and through an external rite of circumcision. And the Apostle Paul, and he fights this battle all through the New Testament. And he is just saying over and over to them, no, it is by faith. And because we're sinful men and women, we always want to make a show of giving God what he wants by observing rites and ceremonies and by feeling superior because of our education, because of our race, our ethnicity, whatever it is, we're always trying to make a big show of giving to God honor, which is what God is due, but for our honor to be external things, well, we reserve our heart for ourselves. And when we reserve our heart for ourselves, our heart is sinful. What we don't want to do is give our sinful heart to God. Because once you get into that territory, there's no hope for your pride. (laughs) Once you start thinking about your sinful heart and taking it to God, it has to be a, a unilateral surrender. Whereas with ethnicity and race and external ceremonies and rites, it can be a sort of negotiated surrender. You know, I'll go to church... I'll take communion, I'll do mass, I'll I'll circumcise my kids, you know. And what we really don't want to have to do is take our hearts to God. And this is always true of everyone. This is not true of me and not of you. It is true of you. And the reason is that we just don't believe that we can go to God with nothing in our hands. Uh, I'd like to just leave it at that, but I have to go further and say... We don't want to go to God with nothing in our hands. (laughs) We want to bring something to commend ourselves to God because we know that if God exists, the gap, the chasm, the unbelievable separation between us and God has all to do with his holiness and our sinfulness. And my whole life I've been struck by the many ways that we have 
to try to forget about our sin and to kill time. You know, you know, smoking dope, drinking. Drinking is common in a university community as a way of killing time. Nobody thinks of it that way. But that's what drinking is. You just go into oblivion. You forget about your sins. You forget about the fact that you haven't gone to class for, you know, three months and, you know, the final's coming. <laughs> um, and to me, my favorite one is always ice fishing. Because I lived in a town where there was a lake at the center of town, and in the winter, there were roads, there were trees stuck in the, in, in the snow that never melted, there were stop signs, there were intersections, there were houses out on the lake, and everybody ice fished, you know? And it's like a village out there. And, and men, grown men, this is true, I've seen it, grown men will go in those little houses on the lake freezing cold. People complain about Bloomington being cold. Trust me, (laughs) Bloomington isn't cold. Okay, this is up in Wisconsin. They're freezing, and they'll just sit there with a little fishing rod for perch. How do you explain this? The only possible way to explain it is that men kill time to escape God. I'm not against ice fishing. I've done it. It's fun. And so here are just normal men and women, boys and girls, in the Roman church who are always going back to Egypt, to the slavery of pride and external performance. And so they just are hanging on tight to being Jews. And because they're hanging on tight to being Jews, they're hanging on tight to circumcision. Gentiles are, are dirty goyim. They're, they're Gentile. And if you read through Scripture, you'll see that they're referred to as the uncircumcised. And, and it's not a nice word. Okay? And the Apostle Paul keeps saying, it's by faith. When you go to God, you have to go to him with your heart. You have to go to him with your heart. Now, we have been in Romans for a number of weeks. I can see here, 19. Okay, this is number 19. I always get a kick out of putting that down, typing it at the beginning of a sermon, feeling like I'm accomplishing something, you know. (laughs) Number 19, right? Um, And... What those of us who have been here the whole time know is that the Apostle Paul is unbelievably repetitious. It, it's mind-numbing how repetitious the Apostle Paul is. And I want you to realize that as we go into this, because what we're about to study, those of us who have been here, or if you've ever read the book of Romans, we've studied this over and over and over and over again. Now, why does the Apostle Paul do that? Is it because he's in the preliminary stages of Alzheimer's? No, (laughs) you know, he's not senile, right? He's not an old man telling the same story over and over again. He's doing this because you and I are stubborn and thick-headed and stupid. And so we have to have the same thing said again and again and again. So let's do it. Let's say it again and again and again. 
Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. In hope against hope he, and that he is Abraham, in hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in thy sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it's repetitious. Throughout Romans 4, the Apostle Paul has been opening up to his readers, there in the church in Rome, the meaning of Moses' declaration concerning God's promise to Abraham that he'd have more descendants than the stars in the night sky. He has been opening up for them Abraham's belief, Abraham's faith in God's promise. And the consequence of that, which is that God reckoned that faith of Abraham to him as righteousness. Now, this chapter, now you know there aren't chapter divisions in the original manuscript, but it's helpful to divide it for us. And this chapter, chapter 4, verse 1 says, well, it begins with a rhetorical question. It begins with uh, the Apostle Paul living in the brains and the hearts of the people he's teaching, and he thinks, okay, they're asking themselves this question. So I'm going to put it down on paper so they know, I know what they're thinking, and I'll answer the question, okay? And that question is this. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? In other words, what's the big deal about Abraham? What's the deal with Abraham? All right? Now, we're nearing the end of an extended episode exposition of this precise question and the answer. And Abraham's faith is still our subject. He here in our text refers to Abraham. In hope against hope, he believed. Now, what is the meaning of that statement in hope against hope? Well, uh, Chrysostom, an early church father, says, in hope beyond hope. And that's a helpful way of thinking about it. Um, You could also translate it against. It's a preposition. Prepositions can be translated in different ways. So you could could say, instead of in hope... uh, In hope against hope, I'm sorry. It could also be beyond. And so it could be in hope beyond hope. And so Chrysostom says it was against man's hope in hope which is of God. 
So, okay, what's man's hope? Well, man's hope here is hopeless. And we're going to get into that. And so you have one hope against the other. The hope that's negative is that I see, I hear, I know, I'm as good as dead. And my wife's womb is dead. That's the negative hope, which is hopeless. But hope against hope, hope beyond hope, is that God has promised, okay? So two hopes. One is hopeless, and the other is hopeful. One has all the evidence. The other has no evidence except puny God. Is God puny? But this is the way you and I live. We are constantly thinking about how hopeless things are and not believing in what God has said. And so we really do think our God is small. In hope against hope, he, Abraham, believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Now, I, I have said, you notice I, I have certain habits when I preach and you just have to love them because I'm not going to give them up, all right? One of my habits is I am so sick and tired of the church patronizing the Apostle Paul. It infuriates me to hear scholars like the men I studied under at seminary just throwing off, well, Paul this and Paul that and Paul the other thing. And the reason I hate it is because that always precedes them cutting down the authority of what Paul has written. And so when we are on a first-name basis with somebody, okay, there's a reason we're on a first-name basis with them, and that is that we feel we don't have to respect them. I don't like being referred to as Pastor Bailey. Never have. It's a discipline that I think is imperative for the children of this church. And, and so I affirm it. It's good. I was taught that by the parents of this church. And I, I used to get against it. We should not be on first name basis with our authority. And so is the Apostle Paul an authority or isn't he? Now, you know, I could... I could say, well, he is, and you say, well, how do you know? And I could say, well, because this is Scripture, and all Scripture is inspired by God. Well, that's sort of the trump card, right? And so everybody has to shut up then, right? Well, it's Scripture. Okay, it's Scripture, right? The problem is that what we really need to hit our heads against is he is an apostle, right? And he says it constantly, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, why does he do that? Well, you know why he does it, right? We all know why he does it. He's such a little man. He's so insecure. I mean, there were super apostles in Manhattan. 
And poor Paul, he, he was stuck. I mean, they lived, they, they took their wives with them when they traveled and preached, and poor Paul is making tents. I mean, doesn't that give you an idea how important he is? You know, he's out cleaning up the brush at Charlie's house. I mean, honestly, what a pathetic man. One of my, uh, you, you all know that, that are here regularly, that um, even though much of what he writes isn't entirely salutary, I love Kierkegaard's book, Attack Upon Christendom. And in that book, he has, the, he has little vignettes. He, used to, he was such a proud man that he wouldn't go to church. He'd sit at a cafe across from the church Sunday mornings and write these little vignettes that would get published in the newspaper. And that's what I love to read, okay? I, I, I always feel he's channeling Jonathan Wegner, if any of you remember Jonathan Wegner, right? Okay? And, and he has this little vignette where he says, I'm not going to get it exactly, and I should have been disciplined to put it, and I could read it to you exactly, but it goes like this. He says, is Paul a serious man? He says, was Paul married? No, Paul wasn't married. Paul is not a serious man. But was Paul a serious man? Paul had no children. No, Paul was not a serious man. And he just goes along like this. Well, this is how we think. You know, a man doesn't have any glory until he has some weight on him. And remember, the weight is your children. Remember Dave Max, Pastor Max, telling his family years ago, okay, all of you come in the living room, I'm going to lie on the floor, and you lie on top of me because I want to feel your weight. This is true. All right? And so here the Apostle Paul is, he's not married. He's not a serious man. He has no children. He's not a serious man. He wasn't rich. He's not a serious man. And so what people do is they read the Apostle Paul writing in the New Testament. They read him saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and they still throw out what he says. They refer to him not as the Apostle Paul, but as Paul, right? And then they argue against what he writes, not just that it's the inspired word of God, but that the Apostle Paul said it. And so this is the reason why always when I am preaching, I do not refer to him as Paul. I will not do it. I call him the Apostle Paul. It's a statement of authority. But the other thing I try to do carefully is stop at every time where Scripture emphasizes the perfection of God's words and rub your noses in it. Because again, we are so proud today. We are so sure that the world was waiting for me. And my brilliance... You know, how many wives look at their husbands and they realize their husband's an idiot? And thank goodness they married him so that they can improve him. 
He was waiting for her brilliance, you know? And that's how we, we look at the whole world this way. And so again, when we come to Scripture, we condescend to sit under its preaching. We condescend to allow the Apostle Paul... Uh, a few years ago, there was a, 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 there was a Bible version that was printed, okay? And uh, <laughs> I had some personal relationship with it. And I opened it up and I read the preface where they explained what their translation principles were. And in that preface, they actually talked about how in the ancient world, which was patriarchal, there was some unseemly language used, and my hair was standing on it. It's like the minute, listen, I went to UW-Madison, which makes Bloomington seem tame. Okay, trust me. There was no Army research building blown up here. You haven't even, well, I won't say it. Okay, and so I can tell you that when it comes to Scripture, um, and when it comes to our attitude towards Scripture, especially Scripture on anything having to do with sexuality, we are just absolutely certain that we are smarter than the Apostle Paul. And we don't even think of the fact that the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote. We don't even think about that. And so I knew from living in Madison that any time an educated person refers to anything as ancient, it's not positive. You know? As in, he's ancient. Not a compliment. As in, that chair is ancient. That coleslaw in the refrigerator. <laughs> is ancient. Ancient is never a compliment. All right? I know you're sitting there thinking the ancient world. Okay, that may be sort of neutral. Listen, we do not need to be enticed into skepticism about the Apostle Paul and the Word of God. And every single time that the Bible says it is written, it was said, it was spoken, he believed God's Word, we stop and we observe once more the emphasis in Scripture on us listening to the Word of God. Listening and believing it. I'm, uh, this morning, Pastor Max told me that this is the first Sunday, I think, where we have people from coming back for the school year, and I've seen some of you. Welcome back. And I just have to say to you again and again, you look at this text, and it says, verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed what? He believed... It says, according to that which had been spoken. And I, I, I will not be ashamed of Scripture. I won't do it. And you can sit there and be cynical and think it's because I'm one of those people Stephen was talk to, talking about in the Sunday school class who gets bait. But I'm going to tell you from the minute I was ordained to the ministry. In both of my two churches, I had leading people attack me 
for my preaching and tell me I was not going to get paid. And so right out of the gate, you face the existential question. Why are you preaching God's word? Why are you doing it for money? I pity pastors who do it for money, and I know a lot of them. I pity them. And I've told this story a number of times, but some of you are new here. As soon as I came to Partyville, I had a a crusty older man who was as cynical and bitter as a man could be. Came in my office one day to talk, and he said, if you keep preaching this way, how much longer do you think we're going to pay you? And you remember the story. I said to him, look over in the corner of the office. He looked in the corner, and I said, what do you see there? And he said, I don't know, vacuum cleaners? I said, yeah. I said, yesterday I bought them at the auction at the public high school. Those are good vacuum cleaners. And I said, you know, until I came here a couple of months ago, I earned my living cleaning. And honestly, I miss it. I really miss it because when you get done cleaning, you can look down the hallway that you've spent hours stripping and waxing and buffing. And you know you can eat off that floor. And that gives me joy. And when I get done preaching, (laughs) there's just not a lot of satisfaction. Can't get no satisfaction. Mondays are depressing. But I believe in the Word of God. I believe that God's Word is true. And specifically about every place that you want to argue with it. I have no shame over the word of God. I have no shame over the creation account. (laughs) You want to tell me how smart scientists are? I've spent my life watching how stupid they are. And you say, what on earth did you mean by that? And do you really need to alienate the students the first Sunday they come? And I go, well, come on. It's not like the university isn't alienating them against us. I think there's a battle, so let me fight, would you please? <laughs> you know? Okay, so here, here's, here's my view. I used to be an environmentalist, worked at First Pres in Boulder, and I had this class where I, I had all the people come into this class, and I was talking to them about the evils of nuclear energy and nuclear weapons, and this was back when people were getting busted for blocking the railroad into Rocky Flats trigger plant for plutonium triggers. Any of you remember that? Some of you do. Come on, tell me you remember it. You don't even remember it? Oh my goodness, all right, I'm old. Anyhow, a bunch of people were getting busted. They were sitting on the tracks and getting arrested. And people in our church were the employees. This was the place that made the plutonium triggers for the nuclear warheads, all right? It was local. And so I was so convinced of the truth of green, you know? You know, environmentalism. And one of my favorite things to do with people is to read to them or give them copies of an article by Barry Commoner. 
Okay, we have one person who's heard it. And what he did was he wrote a whole bunch of serious scholarly articles about how you cannot have an exponential growth in the consumption of fossil fuels without running up against the wall. You just can't have exponential growth. And so it was huge alarmism about the consumption of fossil fuels. They're going to run out. Back then it wasn't carbon. It was, they're going to run out, right? I'd show the graphs to people and it was very important stuff. And I was filled with, I was in high, I was, a, I was a moral young man who felt the weight of his existence. Right? And at the same time, the Club of Rome and a bunch of scholars were talking about how there was going to be massive starvation because India and China were not able to produce food. And so... As the population grew, we were going to get to a point where there were going to be wars all over the world and starvation. And it was going to be in the 90s. All right? And man, I was concerned. We went ahead and had children, but, but I was concerned. I was a man who felt the weight of his existence. The scientists told me the truth. Right? Well, then what happened? Well, number one... Very soon after the commoner articles, what happened? Any of you know? All of a sudden, they discovered an unbelievable amount of undiscovered natural gas. And I mean, there was so much of it, it blew people's minds that God's earth was fecund, fertile. Unbelievably wealthy. I mean, who had ever heard of, you know, oil from shale? It was just the discovery of natural gas and it blew everybody, it blew their brains. Then what happened is Nisha's father got to work. Geneticist up at that other school in Indiana that we don't... (laughs) that we don't talk about. I think it begins with a... Is it a P? Okay. So Nisha's dad is what? Well, he's a man that specializes in the genetics of seed. And he was a professor up there, and what did he do? Well, with a bunch of scholars, they studied how to improve the genetics of plants. And guess what? The green revolution hit. And something happened that nobody ever conceived of being able to happen. What was it? It was that India and China both became self-sufficient in food. Now, I've lived through these alarms and then the solving by God. This is why we say that the most incredible natural resource in the world is actually the human mind. And so now we come to a place where it said that against hope he believed that which had been spoken. And I'm saying to you, God's word is true, though all men are liars. This book is true. I am not ashamed of one word of it. Now, there are some words I wouldn't want to have to read out loud in public, okay? But it's not because they're false. It's because they're so true that we really don't want them read in public. 
you know, you know, like, like for instance, the Apostle Paul saying that all Cretans are liars. This testimony is true, <laughs> you know. Stereotype. So we don't read that. I just use it as an example of things we don't read. <laughs> don't resent me having fun up here. It's what keeps me going. I have to crack myself up every now and then. <laughs> okay? Abraham believed that which had been spoken. You cannot separate your faith from words. And if you're in the business of being PC with your words, okay, you have no faith. You cannot serve the PC masters and be a Christian. Because nothing about faith in Jesus has ever been PC. Okay? It's just simply not. There are things that are PC that the Bible has better. Some of the directions of PC are right in their goal. But you have to choose what words you believe. This applies to scientists. This applies to history of science. This applies to philosophers. This applies to evolutionary biologists. And this applies to composers and economists, okay? We are not ashamed of the word of God. We live our lives as if it is true. (laughs) It's a joke. We don't live our lives as if it's true. We live our lives in such a way that if it isn't true, we are of all men most miserable, okay? We're flat out. We have nothing in reserve. We are not ashamed of the word of God. And so Abraham had been told by God that his descendants would be as the stars of the sky, and Abraham believed, so shall your descendants be. Verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now, If you're around 100, how do you contemplate your own body? Well, the same way doctors do. It's not pretty, right? I mean, if doctors have a choice and they didn't have to deal with, you know, malpractice, they'd all be delivering babies, you know. Nobody wants to go into gerontology. Really, as as a specialty, it kind of stinks. Why? Well, because as the body ages, it's undignified. First of all, the skin has had so many rays of the sun that it gets brittle, it gets wrinkles. Second, what used to be muscles are now flat. All right? The Bible says that Abraham did what? Contemplated his own body, and he was around 100. It wasn't a pretty sight for Abraham. What he saw in his body was opposed to the word of God. All right? God had said, so shall your descendants be. And then he contemplated his own body. And of course, when you contemplate your own body, it's not just the things that are obvious, like wrinkles in the skin. It's also the fact that you really don't have a desire to be intimate with your wife anymore. Right? Everybody knows this. 
Abraham contemplated his own body. You know, he was past the years of being hopeful that God would give him a son or a daughter. Abraham contemplated his own body. And then if we wanted to know how his contemplation ended, it's, it, it tells us, now as good as dead. <laughs> oh. Since he was about 100 years old. Thank you, Paul. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have, you know, come up with that one. And then it adds this, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So in other words, these two are the ones that God is going to bring the descendants that are more numerous than the stars of the sky out of. These two, Abraham and Sarah. He's as good as dead. She's done dead. Her womb is dead. It's very interesting that here uh, Calvin argues with Augustine. And he argues with Augustine because Augustine says that uh, it was Sarah who was dead. It was Sarah who couldn't have children. She was the real miracle. And we know that that's true in that Abraham was able to father Ishmael with Hagar. And so it's obvious that the problem was Sarah. So her womb was dead, right? And so uh, what Augustine says is that the problem was Sarah. Now, why does he say this? Well, because the Bible goes on to tell us a few chapters later in Genesis what? It tells us that after the birth of Isaac, that Abraham went on by another wife to have six sons. And that's the reason they're arguing, where did those sons come from? If God did a miracle in the birth of Isaac, was it a miracle with both Abraham and Sarah, or was it just uh, a miracle with Sarah? Calvin says, no, it's just that when God miracled Abraham, it was such, such a miracle that it carried over to six more sons. And I actually think, you will rarely hear me say this. I think Calvin's wrong. I think Sarah's womb was dead, and I think Abraham was what? As good as dead. <laughs> but who knows? I just thought you'd be interested to know that Calvin argues with Augustine. Without becoming weak in faith, he, Abraham, contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. She was about 90 at this time. And yet, I love that, and yet, with respect to the promise of God, he didn't waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And yet, isn't that how we live our lives as Christians? You know, the thunderheads are coming, the rain's starting, the wind's blowing, you can smell the cold coming. I was out cutting grass, you could smell the storm approaching. And yet, I could maybe get the grass done before it hit. And that's typical where Satan will inundate us with just unbelievable things that prove that God's word is not true. And yet, it says about Abraham, with respect to the promise of God, again, words here, okay? The promise of God, it's words, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Why did he grow strong in faith? Well, he grew strong in faith because he exercised his faith muscles. 
And you must realize that your faith is a muscle that has to be exercised. Okay? There is little faith. There is great faith. You know how many times Jesus rebuked the disciples for being little faith. Faith is a muscle that when you exercise it, it grows. And so all the evidence was against what God had promised Abraham, but Abraham did not waver in unbelief. And therefore, it's just like any, excuse me, any exercise where you put the muscles into the exercise causes, excuse me, pain. And then you grow strong. Faith is a muscle that you must exercise and you will grow strong. And that process of believing God's word, despite the evidence, gives glory to God. Okay? God is not glorified when you've spent your life salting money away, putting your treasure here on this earth so that in old age you can say, oh, I won't be a a burden to any of you. Praise God, I won't be a burden to any of you. That doesn't glorify God. That just shows that you did a good job saving and and not not giving your money to God. Uh, Recently, I was with my my dear brother-in-law. I was with his wife. And when I lived with him up on Breezy Hill Farm, he was a guy, I tell you, that he had an organic dairy goat farm. We'd milk 50 goats a day. By hand, by the way. And uh, he would just drive us crazy sometimes because what he would do is if he had a debt that needed a payment, say his mortgage, right before the mortgage came due, he would give a bunch of money away. And you'd say, why did you do that? And he said, well, because I want God to provide for my mortgage. So it was a principle with him to back himself into a corner just like a builder, Mike, He'd back himself into a corner so the provision had to come from God and not from his own strength and wisdom. Now, I know that you're all going to say the guy's an idiot. But I've watched Peter his whole life. He's no idiot. Recently, they're now in their 70s, and recently Peter had a son who is not doing real well financially, and I was talking to his mother out of concern. And I said to her, why don't you and Peter just give him money? And immediately she said, We don't have any money. Well, because I'm in the family, I know about the finances of the family to some degree, if you read my meaning, okay? And immediately, what I knew was that they don't have money because until he dies, Peter is going to be giving away his money. Listen. God is glorified when we trust him and live in such a way that if he fails us, we fall on our faces. This is what it means to have lots of children, people. It was an act of faith. Don't doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. You know, especially as your children get older and they begin to shame you and embarrass you by their behavior as adults. Don't doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. God says children are a blessing from him. And so we have children, not because we want a a bunch of little Tim Baileys running around. Trust me, 
the more one of my grandchildren reminds me of myself, the more I dislike him. <laughs> right? Any of you that way? <laughs> you know? It's not that we want a bunch of... It's not that there are retirement... You know, all the liberals, what they, what they say about us, breeders is what they call us, you know? Come on. We do it because we're living by faith. We're backing ourselves into a corner. And our wives who care for our children instead of going out and using their most excellent minds and discipline, almost always superior to their husbands. And they stay home. What a wasted life. Now, by faith. By faith, they give themselves to the most undignified and despised job in the Western world today, which is motherhood. He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. When you have children, when your wife stays home, when you stay home, you are giving glory to God because you're living by his word. Don't ever let the world convince you otherwise. The Apostle Paul continues. In verse 21, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. You just think of how patronizing we are to God, thinking we have to help him, thinking we have to set up the odds of our life in such a way that if he fails us, we have something to fall back on. Huh? I, in the first service, I was thinking about this. And listen, those of you who are new here this week, two things to watch out for, okay? And anybody, the older women of this church, the older men, the elders, deacons, anybody will tell you this is true. When you come to the university, the first thing that's going to hit you is where on earth are you going to find a Christian to marry? And we have watched now, in my case, for 25 years, Christian young men and women who come to this community and their heart is for God originally. But then what they do is they get scared about their marriage prospects. Happens to men and women. And what do they do? They begin to date an unbeliever. I have watched this, we all have watched this so many times. Do you believe that God will provide you a husband or a wife if it's his will for you to marry? Do you believe that? And then what happens for some is they're in the church. Listen, don't tell me you have faith in Jesus Christ and then start dating an unbeliever. Don't tell me you have faith in Jesus Christ and then marry somebody who you are trembling as you marry them. You're fearful because you know that God has not given you direction about this person in this marriage. You wait, you wait on God about who you marry. You don't have to know his name to pray for him, okay? Pray for him. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed the word of God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Now, here comes a sweet spot. Okay, at this point in the text, the Apostle Paul stops, and it's like he knows he has nursing, he has, you know, 
lambs with broken legs and nursing ewes. And, and, and so he stops and he turns around and he helps to pull us along when he writes this. He says, now, not for his sake only, speaking of Abraham, was it written, <laughs> okay, remember I said I'll stop. I'll say it to you. It was written. You, you see that here? That it was, was it written? Okay, I, I made note of it. Now, not for his sake only, was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited. You know, when we read for the nth time to our children, Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, we're not reading it because we can imagine Alexander in, in Australia. We're reading it because universally we identify. And so do our children. The reason that the Apostle Paul is going on and on and on and on and on about Abraham is not because Abraham is some high up, lifted up figure that we look up at him and it inspires us to live more religiously, more spiritually, more mystically, more, you know. No, there is, there is a coupler between Abraham and us. And that coupler is hard. Uh, I worked for Chicago Northwestern for a while, and I went to apply at the same time as a friend of mine went to apply. He got a job because he wasn't colorblind working as a brakeman. I got a job at the Proviso Yards as a mechanic of the freight cars because I'm colorblind. And he came home after his first day at work, and he said, you know what the first thing is that they did my first day on the job? I said, what? He said, they took us out to West Chicago to the yards, and very slowly they shoved two boxcars at each other, just a mile or two per hour. I mean, yeah, yeah, per hour. Very slowly. And he said they had put two sandbags in the couplers that were open. And we watched as those cars came together and the couplers just coupled right through the sandbag. And they said, that's your first lesson in working on the railroad. God has ordained for there to be an absolutely unbreakable connection between Abraham's faith and ours. That's why we're called his descendants. And it comes by faith. It doesn't come from circumcision. It doesn't come by the Lord's Supper and baptism. They're used as circumcision was used. God lowers himself to us. But it comes by faith. And so he says, therefore, it was credited not for his sake only, was it written that it was credited, but for our sake also, to whom it, and then notice the tense, will be credited. So, again I'm going to ask, do you believe the written words of God? The Apostle Paul did. Jesus did. If you search the Gospels for the phrase, it is written, it's just all over the Gospels. Again and again, it's in Jesus' mouth when he's tempted. Okay, what does he say to Satan out in the wilderness? It is written. Three times he says that.
but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. This is the theme of the apostolic preaching of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. You remember that when the Apostle Paul does this in the Areopagus in Athens, you remember their response? That a number of them just, just scorned him. They just laughed at him. Why? Because he preached the resurrection of the dead. And then verse 25, he, speaking of Jesus, who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. 1 Peter 2.24, speaking of Jesus, says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. His death was in our place, paying the penalty for our sin. His resurrection is in our place, carrying with it the promise that God will justify us. Now, an application. Um, Let me read a little bit of Calvin, okay? Calvin says this. He says, let us also remember that we are all in the same condition as Abraham. Our circumstances are all in opposition to the promises of God. He promises us immortality, and yet we are surrounded by mortality and corruption. Right? Right? You remember the beginning of of Cranmer's prayer book, the the funeral service, the committal service? In the midst of life, we live in death. Death is everywhere. And so God promises his immortality, and yet we're surrounded by death and corruption. God declares that he accounts us righteous, and yet we are covered with sins. God testifies that he is propitious and benevolent towards us. It's very interesting, the words that die. Propitious and benevolent. Well, we're so equality Americans, you know. We won't have anybody being propitious. Why do I need him to be propitious? Why do I need any benevolence? That's like paternalism. I don't need any noblesse oblige. I don't need nothing. And so, propitious and benevolent towards us. Uh, In other words, God is disposed to overlook our failures and sins. And then it says, yet outward signs threaten his wrath, even down. Do you remember how Jonathan Edwards says, before he became convinced of God's mercy, he hated thunderstorms. Why? Well, all through history. People have seen thunderstorms and and lightning and thunder as a warning of the anger and the fury of God. God hasn't just made nature willy-nilly. And so it says he's propitious and benevolent towards us, and yet outward signs threaten his wrath. 
And then you read the Bible. It's filled with threats. And then Calvin says, so what are we to do? What are we then to do? And then he says this. He says, we must close our eyes, disregard ourselves and everything connected with us, so that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. Pagan intellectuals will will view this as one of two things. Either if they're existentialists, a leap into the dark, or if they're just crass rationalists, empiricists, they'll view this as no-mind, anti-intellectual, timidity, fear, you know. Close your eyes? Are you serious? You know? I remember telling a young man in this church who had a, had a real penchant for, uh, for uh, uh, styles. Uh, fads. Somebody said the word fad. Thank you. He was really into fads. And one day I said to him, I said, I've never said this before to anybody, but I'm telling you, you may not read N.T. Wright. No. Why did I do it? Well, he was a a Baptist, and Baptists have trouble not becoming sacramentalists. And I was sure that Wright would lead him down that path, because he's led many down that path. Anglican guy, right? Bishop of Durham, who's now, I think, retired. Listen. If blinders help horses... They help men and women, too. Okay? Calvin says, close your eyes and believe the word of God. And if you can't name places in your life where you're closing your eyes, you remember what it says about Christian at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress? Takes his hands over there, screaming, life, life! Why? Because his wife and all his neighbors are crying out to him to not go to God with his sins for forgiveness. Because it's just going to be such a complication to them. He screams life and covers his ears. And so I want you to look at this text and realize these promises, this account, Abraham, is for you. And by faith, you are coupled to Abraham as your father and to God. And God is true, though all men are liars. So you believe the words of God. Okay? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray for all of those who are beginning school, that you will give them the ability to discern between truth and falsehood, between so-called knowledge and wisdom. We pray, Father, for the men and women who are here who are professors, that you will make them faithful and not afraid. Those in support services, help us, Father, to be Christians at IU. And would you please fill this church with those who are being saved? Would you please give us a love for truth that causes us not to turn aside from the word of God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.